Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the Christmas special. The regular season of Sentimental will resume in January, but for today, sell your hair, burn your sister's manuscript, and fall through the ice of our festive wanderings through little women. My name is Karen O'Donoghue, and I gave up billiards for you. <laughs> and she's been angry every day of her life. It's Ella Risbridger. Hi, pal. Hello. It's so nice to be back. I love this tradition. It's so good. Is this number four? I think so. So we still Children's books, Mitford's, and uh, your one, uh, Nora, <laughs> Nora Efron. Oh yeah, well we watched Sleepless. And yes, I, I hate Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> You're fascinated by Sleepless in Seattle. That's because it's mental. It, it is a crazy story. And speaking of crazy stories, <laughs> have we got a crazy? Boy, story? have we got a tall tale for you! Imagine a world where a book about only sisters doing not much was the most famous book ever written. <laughs> Imagine, I'm imagining it. I mean, we could live in that world, Caroline. We could, we could live in that world. It's this thing. Um, so we're talking about Little Women for the Christmas special that was suggested by one of the listeners. Uh, fantastic suggestion. I don't know why we didn't think of it. I'm a little bit resentful. I'm resentful also. It's like it feels like such an easy win. It starts with Christmas. Yeah. It's about sisters. It's about being one of four. Yes. Which we can both talk about. Yes. But carefully, because my family will listen to this podcast probably on Christmas Eve. But and it's also like our our favorite. Th- I think if you're from a big family, your favorite thing to discuss is positionings within big families and how they uh, are the only real star signs I care about. Actually, the only star sign. Okay. So I'm so interested in our mutual evolving relationships with this tale, the tale of Little Women. Tell me about yours. Well, this is what I was going to say. Was it's very much an evolving relationship. I couldn't work out whether you meant our collective, as in women. No, I mean you specifically. With little women. But my personal relationship with little women, complex. Mm. It was in waves. Yeah. One of those things where I know, I knew as a child that everyone wanted, everyone was like, you'll love little women. Mm-hmm. You are Joe. And I yeah. was like, I'm not really. You just think that because I... I like to write. I like to write. I'm not. Mm-hmm. But it is very good. And I have read it 30 times. I have seen a variety of adaptations of mm-hmm. Little Women. I've read the sequels, which I think puts me in a very small category <laughs> of people because they suck. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what you always dreamed for for Joe was that she would have sons and have a school? <laughs> No. <laughs> do that. Why do that? I mean, let's we'll talk about that. We'll talk about it. My relationship with Little Women is similarly thorny. Um, I, I, and I think a lot of that has to. It might. I think 
it also has to do with our mutual ages. I was born in 1990, you were born in 1992. Um, and the 90s version of Little Women came out in 95, making us a little young on the young side for that movie to relate too much to the Winona Ryder character, I think. I have to say, I watched that movie this morning. Mm-hmm. That's a little prep. You know, I do my homework. And I felt more fondly towards it, having seen a whole bunch of other yeah. adaptations in prep for this. I would say my relationship to that film, again, people want me to like it too much. Yes, and people want me to like Winona Ryder too much. And I think people will be horrified listening to this because I when I announced that we were going to do this, everyone was like, oh, the Winona Ryder version. It makes me cry. It makes me cry. It makes me cry. It's the most important film in the world. Yeah, yeah. And I do get that, but I, I think... I understand it. I respect it deeply. But I would say I'm still not all the way there with it. And I don't know why. I think maybe an age thing. For me, it's... Well, so we had, you know, to go back to the family placement thing, I'm the youngest of four, making me both the structural Amy and also, in my soul, an Amy. <laughs> Just... Whereas I'm the oldest of four. Yeah. And I... Because of that, I'm the oldest of all girls. I always felt a deep kinship with Meg. Mm-hmm. But at the same time being like, you so clearly despise Meg. The text hates Meg. Yeah. But and that makes it very hard to not I not to be like, I'm Joe. Yeah. And I, and I just spent a lot of my childhood putting on plays and convincing people to be in them. Uh-huh. And writing in attics. Yes. Which was nice and Joeish. But never really that thing of, I'll win a foot race. <laughs> I'll beat all the boys. But for me, there was, um, uh, so we we had the VHS in our house. And even though, you know, as with any sort of 90s kid, any video that you have in your house, therefore gets watched to death. Um, and Little Women, I never really liked. And and I realise now it's because I felt this this huge discomfort with it. Because that film really hates Amy. <laughs> and I... And I think the Greta Gerwig version became known for the great sort of rehabilitation of Amy. But in the 1995 version, it's very like she's a bratty kid. And then we sort of miss the... And then they they changed the actor. So you kind of... You you are annoyed by, but you sort of enjoy the Kirsten Dunst playing of her. And then they change the actress, Samantha Mathis, and she feels very distant and alien. And all we really know about her is that she goes to Paris when that should have been... Joe's, she's a little thief. She's a thief. She steals the manuscript as a child. She steals yeah. Europe and Laurie as an adult. Exactly. And and that is very much how she's portrayed in that movie. And that made me incredibly uncomfortable because I felt that I really related to her her whole thing because when you're the youngest, and my parents were also both youngest children, there is a sense of people, you're petted a lot and you're sort of like and people want you to be cute and you're good at being cute for them um, and you're good at responding to that but also there's a huge loneliness in being the youngest because your older siblings naturally want to hang out with the next older sibling more than they want to hang out with you this is so heartbreaking <laughs> and, and so you're alone a lot of the time and you're deserted a lot of the time and that scene where she, she yeah they go to the theatre without her and she wants to go and she has a crush on Laurie and they're so mean to her and they dismiss her and like of course she fucking burns the manuscript I'm like good on you. It's like I never did anything like that, but I definitely fantasized about doing things like that, you know. Whereas as the oldest, yeah, this is where my my Meg thing really came in. There's no home movie of me ever. There's no home movie of me as a child where I'm not carrying another child. Yeah, yeah. I'm just constantly there with like a baby on my nine year old hip, being like, 
all right, we're just going up to the garden to look at an apple. <laughs> I don't think anyone had asked me to do that. I think I just felt strongly that my job was... Yeah. Making things a bit nice and also just kind of constant mothering. Mm-hmm. And that's what really... Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, an Ella and Caroline Christmas classic. <laughs> so far ahead of ourselves. But that, I think, is what, for me, ties together my kind of deep dive into the little into little women this Christmas mm-hmm. has been I've really tried to care more about other relationships other than just Joe's. Yes. I feel like there's a tendency with little women to be like, Joe's story, Joe's, Joe, mm. Joe, Joe, Joe loves Laurie, Joe hates Laurie, Joe hates Amy, Joe loves Beth, mm-hmm. Joe resents Meg. And what if you're like, what's the Meg-Beth story? What's the Meg-Amy yeah. story? Like, Meg giving Amy the money to buy the pickled limes. I know. Because she's like, yeah, I remember. And Joe's like, you fool, you foolish child. (laughs) Very much doing the Catherine Hepburn version. (laughs) 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 You you prickly little fool. Exactly, but Joe doesn't care that Amy is actually in a school where she has some friends, but everyone laughs at her all the time because they haven't got any money for limes. And Meg's like, okay... Here is the quarter that you need to buy your limes. And I just think that the story is more than Joe and we should accept it for being more than just Joe. Yeah. Do you remember a really long time ago? This is such a deep cut for fans of Caroline. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) You wrote that piece about how everyone thinks they're Lizzie Bennett or Joe March and they're just not. Yeah. Do you know what? This is like a very personal gripe of mine and Christmas is time for personal gripes so I'm finally going to air this. Air it, please. I invented... (laughs) To begin a phrase with I invented. Do you know know, know how I think in Friends where where Ross thinks he invented got milk? Um, I I invented main character syndrome. I wrote about it in 2015. And I called it, you know, it was like, you know, those girls who are obsessed with being the main one. And I was like capitalizing the main one. And it's like the girls who are like, who insist they're Joe March, who insist they're Lizzie Bennett or whatever, which is what that piece was about. It was about how um, it was for the pool. So none of you can prove whether I was right or wrong, <laughs> crucially, um, because that back catalogue and all of our work that we did in it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> I feel great not to be burdened with my back catalogue. Yeah. Let's be real. Joe, probably in time. Grew to feel the same about Amy burning her manuscript. Yes. Because that was the wiping of the pool archives. The wiping of the pool archives. <laughs> furious though we were at the time. <laughs> Could not be more delighted. Amy burning the manuscript. Because, as is canonically true, Joe is a terrible writer. <laughs> Joe is a writer with yeah. good instincts and talent, but zero taste. Zero taste and zero... Um, a direct ambition of a story she truly wants to tell in her heart. Until she writes the, the sort of autofiction which everyone is mocking people for now in 2022. This is an interesting thing of like... Because um, I, was, I was thinking a lot today about how in every portrayal of Little Women, it's like there always comes a point... It's, like, it's a thing that breaks Jo's sort of misery and her cycle of misery of like, my sisters are going away from me, Meg's married, you know, uh, Amy's sort of... Um, uh, married Laurie and gone off to Paris or whatever, stolen my opportunities, Beth has died. And it's like this thing, a, a, we, we were researching this, we both found a writer, I can't remember who did it, said it, but how the main struggle of Little Women is Joe versus Time and how she does it. I believe it was the uh, composer of the Little Women opera. <laughs> <laughs> See, we have done our research today. 
Um, and the thing that like solidifies Joe and gets her feet back on the ground is the writing of their story, right? And it's this thing of um, nailing down your own story and showing people, look, this matters. This matters. It's it. it relinquishes you of your urge to hold on to the story as it's happening and it made me realize that like oh like two of my best friends are memoirists and I wonder if there is something in that of like once you've stapled your history to the ground it gives you a sort of a freedom from it because that's the arc with Joe and everything it's like as soon as she commits her family to text she's freer with her family I think actually there is something in that in the I've written two big memoirs now. Mm. And I do feel freed from making a narrative of either my kind of early suicidal years or John dying. Mm. And I I do think publishing those books set me free in a way. I wonder if this is all writers or just memoirists who are this self-absorbed, just like caught in your own mm. story to that extent. Yeah, yeah. I think it is all, I think all writers are control freaks. Um, by yeah, but because it, it is, I think we like to pretend like, oh, I just love to spin a yarn, and sure, we all love to spin a yarn, but there is a thing of like, no, my version of events is the version of events. It's a it's a private feeling that exists within everyone, I think, and I think that's even when you watch Little Women, any version of it, and that, what I really like about Greta Gerwig's version of it is she's like she she wants it to feel like nostalgia like the bits that you're seeing in the past of like oh the the burning of the book and the hair and gathering around the armchair for to read father's letter she she there's a, there's a line in her script that she says um this christmas like all christmases view through the girlhood of a good th- view through the snow snow globe of girlhood always there and and forever lost do you know what I mean this thing of like it's gone forever and was it ever really that good or are we just remembering it this way you know this is very personally triggering for me I have to go home for Christmas to my sister my three (laughs) sisters and I am full of as good as the girlhood as good as Christmas in the past even though you know sometimes I see like a home movie my dad was big into having this little camcorder yes my dad too I think it was the time Mm, it was the style of the time and then sometimes I'll see something and I'll think, oh my God, I was miserable that Christmas. I'll look at like little nine, there's a bit where I'm like seven and I'm trying, I'm playing Christmas carols on the piano and my great uncle, who I love dearly, starts like singing along and I just mm-hmm. slam the piano lid shut, go and wrap myself up in a, the curtain in the sitting room and I say, how can I play when everyone is making a noise? <laughs> I love it. This is so funny because this is a famous thing in our family where with our oldest, Jill, there's a there's a, fi- like a clip of her with her like Casio keyboard. She's just unwrapped and she's playing Edelweiss. And like you know, she's a twelve year old trying to sing She's like singing her own harmony. It's very cute, but like it became this thing in the family of like people just looking at you going Edelweiss, and she just would just leave the room and just like it is still like not okay as a joke. <laughs> you know what I. I really empathise. Empathise <laughs> with being mocked, and that's the thing with like, with this book is that like it. I think what actually what moves me the most of, about Little Women is the fact of it, rather than any individual event. It's like oh, a woman saw her sisters in their ha- just in their house doing their stuff, doing the stuff that sisters do, and she 
yes, part of it was that she was sort of pressured into writing about it so her father could strike up a deal with the publisher so he could publish his transcendentalist manuscripts. But that aside, it's the courage of saying this matters and it's the fact that everybody also decided it mattered too and the freedom that gives female writing, you know? That's so nice and I think it's so important in terms of like little women's wider place. Very few people come resist adapting this without putting a class struggle in there, class, race, gender. It really, for something that is, I observe my sisters, here is what it is to have sisters. It's not afraid of going very big on the big things and no one who adapts it thinks otherwise. Like in the 90s version, there's that bit where Amy's being mocked in school. Oh no, it's not Amy being mocked in school, it's Meg being mocked when she's getting ready for the dance. Because they don't wear silk the or cotton. don't wear silk. Mm. Uh, didn't your father let a little dark girl into the school? Mm-hmm. And then he was you know, ruined, or I can't remember the exact line, but the yeah, gist yeah. is, you're an anti-racist and that's why you look ugly. Yeah, you, and that's, that's like, um, you're right, it is, because it's such a political household, right, the Alcott family. To such a terrifying degree. Yeah. I mean... So yeah, let's talk about a little bit about the sort of cultural history or the uh, the uh, cultural uh, history of the old gods. Yeah, i.e., parents parents who both have Wikipedia pages, which is something I generally frown upon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when, when someone's got a parent who's a blue linker, you're like, you didn't get what you got on your own. And that's such a bad way to think because some great people have parents with a blue link, but the minute I see a single blue link, I think, nope, no respect from me. <laughs> which is sad to say about Louisa May Alcott, someone who. But then again, she's comfortably more famous than her, both her parents. I think I think they have a blue link because her fame d- demanded that they were worthy of for their scholarship. I don't think they would have made it on their own. I think the father would. Okay, go because on. Because he was friends with Emerson and mm-hmm. Thoreau and was like in that little group of mm-hmm. transcendentalist thinkers. Unfortunately, he wasn't very good. I mean, I... I will confess to listeners of this podcast, I've not actually read any of Louisa May Alcott's dad's books. No. Because they seem bad. And even at the time, everyone's like, wow, his books are very bad. Gosh. But what a great fella. His books are so bad, but what a great fella. He's actually, if anyone's read the Poisonwood Bible, a great favourite of ours that we still haven't covered on this podcast, despite several times saying that we would. But that is a, that is kind of like a, a great sister book in that it's four sisters who move to the Belgian Congo with their preacher father, who has incredibly uh, strict, deep and, you know, utopian ideas about the society he could make if only he were in charge. And what he makes is a mess <laughs> and he, well, he uses his children as guinea pigs and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't do you think it would be possible to write a book about four sisters that was not that was not in some way a nod of the head to little women like can you avoid the pull of little women certainly growing up we couldn't yeah. having four sisters people talk to you about little women mm-hmm. all the time ah four girls you must be like the other four girls which is interesting as well because some of our longest running conversations are which Mitford sister are you? Which wife of Henry VIII are you? Mm-hmm. I think this is a big thing to do with it, actually, that like women just love taxonomizing each other. It's it's like it comes from this culture of like teen magazines are like mostly A's. You're a Ma- <laughs> you're an Amy or whatever. Um, it happens whenever there is a concentration of women in one place in history, and like that doesn't happen all that often to have a concentration of female characters. Like even to the point where I remember you telling me this years ago that. Uh, old family trees didn't count daughters. Often, yeah. Yeah. Just like, here's the son. 
Also, six daughters. Yeah, and, and sometimes there'll be like a little, like, a little teeny little branch that'll go out and be like, and the daughter married some guy. We don't care because she didn't carry on the sort of legacy of this particular family. So why does it matter? Well, but I mean, it does matter. <laughs> let's let's um, get back to the movies. Uh, we watched quite a few of them in preparation for this. It would be impossible to go through every single adaptation, but things we watched were the 1925 Little Women, the... Uh, one that came out a couple of years ago. It's Fitzgerald Ronan, directed by Greta Gerwig, which is personally my favourite. We watched the Catherine Hepburn version that was made in the 30s, which I didn't love, but it was the kind of the original, you know, there was a silent one they made in the 20s that's been lost. Best. Yeah, um, but but that, but that's kind of the, the main cinematic text that the other ones are drawing from. And it is fine. Laurie's weird. We'll get back to that later. Uh, I, I watched a little bit of a Korean drama that is loosely based on Little Women. And then... Which we watched the other night in my house and enjoyed way more than we should have, which was The March Sisters at Christmas, a made-for-TV Christmas movie, which is a 2012 telling of the Little Women story, but with with four women who are trying to save their parents' house while their parents are in Afghanistan. <laughs> it really made me think, how many made-for-TV movies are there out there that I have never seen? Mm-hmm. Never heard of. Don't know to go looking for. But would really great, bring me a great deal of joy. I loved The March Sisters at Christmas. I thought it was such a smart, thoughtful retelling yeah. in a way that made me really happy and appreciate new things about the original text. Like what? Like Meg's relationships. Meg's mm. feelings about her sisters. Okay, so <laughs> where to begin? Mm. In this version, yes, Beth is kind of... Nah. I kind of this is my favorite telling of the Beth myth because with every because like every version she's a ticking clock you're just like waiting for waiting her. for the thing to happen to yeah. Beth but in this version she like Tiny Tim did not die <laughs> <laughs> because because once again it's a Hallmark Christmas movie and they don't want a death in that there's quite a lot of peril for a Hallmark Christmas movie yeah so instead they 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 have her as as a lost soul which is like someone who's kind of still like the, the kid, they've all they're all adults. Um, and she's just kind of bombing around the house and she's just a bit directionless and drifty she rather than sickly. Pianist, yeah. Which does manifest in many of the same ways. Yes, that's so true. It's like being having no dream or no particular ambition now is what being a general invalid was back then. It's like, oh, she's you're someone who's just like, they're not going to die soon, but they're sort of... We kind of wish that they would pick a major. Just like, come on, you're drifting around. You're not... And I think what this movie did so well was that she'd been like a child prodigy and playing the piano really well. And everyone was like, Beth, she's going to go to Juilliard. Juilliard. And there is this truly devastating scene. So throughout the movie, Meg in particular is like, I made you this vision board. It's how you're going to get to Juilliard. Look, you can colour in a little square. It's this infantilization of her kind of thing, which all happens as well in the original text of like, you're a deer and nothing more. And this sort of um, denying her to have any kind of interior life. And she's like, oh, Beth, the things you come out with kind of thing, the sort of silly dreamy things you come out with, even when she's well. And and like this, she in this version she presented it like this vision board. It's like you can color in every step. It's like this is filling out the application for Juilliard, and this is the interview. And look, see, I bought you some pencils. And like, this is a twenty-two-year-old woman, and she's like, uh huh. But she's too shy and kind to say to her sister, "Fuck off." This is patronizing. Fuck off. But there is this incredible moment, which I think I will think about for a long time, where Meg is trying to give Beth this pep talk, and she's like. 
You know, you're an incredible pianist. Who says you can't go to Juilliard? Who says you'll never play in Vienna? And Beth just looked at her and was like, my applications, my tutor, my teachers, everyone I know in the world of music. <laughs> I'm just not that talented. And it's like, whoa, I, yeah. I've never seen that in a film. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen the hero's journey be like, I'm just not good enough. And I'm okay with that, but you need to be also. <laughs> you need to be fine with me being fine. Yeah. I'm going to teach music to children. And I like that. And I'm going to stay living at home because that's what I want to do. What a journey. For me, the most satisfying rendering of the Beth story. I sent you, I sent Caroline this piece by Carmen Maria Machado, I think. Yeah. About the Beth phenomenon yeah. and writing about Beth because it was such a a kind of brutal clarification on what Louisa May Alcott is trying to do with this saintly Beth mm. and what later adaptations kind of make of it because mm. she's not a character. Yeah. She has no personality except playing with her dolls, dressing them up in clothes. Mm having baskets of kittens constantly brought to her. The point is, in the books, Beth has no personality. Mm. She's just always en route to being dead. Yeah. Because when she's dead, she's a saint. Yeah. And it's like... So Louisa Mayolka had this sister, Lizzie, who also died at 22. And I think the thing that really stuck with me from that Carmen Maria Machado piece was that she had found this quote from... Emerson, I think, mm -hmm. who happened to be at the funeral. Mm. It, was like, it was like everyone had forgotten we were burying a woman of 22. Mm. Everyone kept talking about her as, what a good child, what a lovely little girl. Yeah. And I think about that a lot. The idea that you could be immortalised forever as a dear and nothing more. Mm. If I did that to my sister, I mean, she'd be dead, but she still would never forgive me. Mm. The idea of having your whole personality reduced down to, yeah. oh, Beth, why don't you sickly play the piano and then faint again? <laughs> having said that, though, there are... That is definitely the depiction of her in every major version. And I think it was probably best done by Claire Danes. I think she just manages that sort of like slightly wispy, that thing where like... Someone's slightly a step behind and slightly a step away, even when they're well, of like sort of drifty. I think it like that does represent people I've met. Do you know what I mean? Like people can be like that. It does. But I don't feel that it's often done very well. I don't yeah. even know if Louisa May Olcott does it well. Yeah. You know, I think the other thing is that I've it is a novel about four sisters. And of course, it's all about sisters. But it's really about three sisters, not four. Yeah. It's about three sisters and a wisp. Yeah. Yeah. And I resent that. I resent the four sisters being compressed into three characters and... Oh, oh me. Oh, Beth, yeah. Oh, Beth. Like, she's very kind and loving, but it almost feels like I always want to kind of shake Louisa May Alcott and just say, look, you can... There's um a bit at the end of... Marcado's piece where she says um, there's like a, 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 an anecdote that various members of the family had told because Louisa is not the only famous sister like the, the sort of Amy character did go on to be a great painter 
and died quite young, I think, right? The, anyway, there's an anecdote at the end of that article where she talks about how the, the, this, they all, the, you know, Lizzie was such a sweet kid and, you know, she was so sort of pliable and, and whatever and such a, a good baby that they, one sort of summer's day, they all sort of built a little uh, tome of books around her kind of thing. They built like a little castle of books around her and she just fell asleep. And then they, they kind of wandered off and they'd sort of forgotten that she was there. And then they just, she sort of woke up and towered and, and toppled the books and came out. And I was like, oh, that's what they've done to her. That's what that family has done. They've created a tomb of words. It's very scary. Yeah. The idea of memorialising someone in that way. And I think it's something I think about a lot as a memoirist and a memoirist who, like my last two books have both been about somebody who was already dead when I published them. Mm. And I think I felt very strongly as I was writing. I kept trying to knock down my own kind of book palaces that I was building around him. Yeah. Because it felt like such a terrible thing to do to someone who couldn't answer, answer back. And I I think... I, I just think you have to be careful. And I wonder whether subconsciously part of my thinking around that has been influenced by thinking what a terrible thing they do to Beth. Mm. Like what an injustice it is for Beth to have no character. Because mm. that Mikado piece, it also like quotes some of Lizzie Olcott's own letters. Yeah, which are very like prickly and weird. Prickly and weird about just like staring like a man looking at her funny on a train because she was obviously an invalid. So just like staring him in the eye and eating a huge sandwich. <laughs> just being like, no, I stared at him with my worst look and then I ate my sandwich. Yeah. A person, a person emerges. A person emerges. And like, and also it's it's sort of... It is even more disturbing when you read that character on the page and then when you see her translated to various screen versions where um, she does have this sort of dreamy far awayness and then you read that, oh, they were, they had her plied with laudanum all of the time. Like she would shout and scream in pain and they would just like give her so much to the fact, the point where she couldn't feel it anymore almost, you know? And it's like, oh, that's, that Claire Danes performance is an opo- opioid performance, you know? Yeah, and there's something... I know we were talking about how you're like, I know people like that. But I think there is something strange and kind of disturbing about being like, no, that was my sister. She was just very dreamy. Mm. She was just dreamy. That's how she was. I mean, like, well, might she have been less dreamy if you drugged her less? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, just throwing yeah, some ideas yeah. out there. There is a bit that really moved me in the book when I reread it. Um, which was, you know, they they had the first sort of like illustration of all the characters of like, and Meg was like this, and Amy's like this, and Joe's like this, and then it's like it has the thing of like, and you know, Beth loved her dolls, and she loved kittens, and she loved being at home, and this and this, and you know, and then it kind of ends with like, um, there are character, there are there are people like Beth in every home in the country, um, people who's, uh, you know, something like their their pleasant cricket chirping is not noticed until it's gone kind of thing and I, I did find I was like oh like yes what you do to you do limit your sister's legacy in such a kind of a brutal way and all this but I did think like part of her was like yeah sick people don't get to be in stories but they're still there you know I mean sick people gentle people quiet people yeah because neither Meg or Amy kind though they may be yeah are gentle you know Meg yeah, let's move on to Meg. We've talked about Beth a lot now. Meg is constantly sort of quite openly being like, no, I'm very mercenary. 
I like things to be nice and I hate the whip poor and I hate the scum life that we must live and this journey to be free. And obviously she kind of redeems herself. You can't see my air quotes, but redeems herself by marrying a poor man and being like, no, I'm so happy. I'm a wonderful wife and mother. Yeah. And, you know, I shall never be cross again or whatever. But there is that streak in her. Even mm. when she's married to John Brooke, she's yeah. like, I hate cooking these jams for you. Oh, my God, the jams. <laughs> I was, I was reading about the jams this morning. <laughs> I hate to cook for you. I hate to clean for you. You just think Meg did need to be rich. She needed some yeah. help. Yeah. She needed some help or less domestic expectations. It's funny, um, when Greta Gerwig was being interviewed for her version of it, um, she spoke about what she refers to as the stations of the cross of Little Women, which I think is a brilliant way of putting it, of like, every movie has to have the burning of the manuscript, the cutting of the hair, the falling through the eyes, the uh, Meg going to that party and putting on a nice dress, and then Laurie shouting at her for a weird reason. With those key points that every narrative hits. But there are also, I mean, these are huge books. Like, there are... Uh, like there's a lot not even they're not a huge book but they're they're novel sized and there's four of them like there's a lot of stuff that does not get touched by any adaptation and a lot of it what I was surprised by on this read through was that um, Meg kind of marries John Brooke out of spite Mm. so it's this whole thing where like she you know she likes him she's fond of him he's always coming around he's like he's a bit of a Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice right? He is a bit of a Mr. Collins and um you know, and, and he kind of grows into like, he goes, kind of grows out of that and goes into like a very good standing man or whatever. But there's um this whole thing where she's like, oh, I don't know. He's asked me to marry him. Uh, I don't know, kind of thing. And then Aunt March comes around and she gives the, you know, fire and brimstone being like, if you dare to marry this man and lower yourself. And Meg sort of marry, accepts his proposal then out of spite to Aunt March. And then it's like, and three years pass. Because <laughs> it's like, she's too young to get married. The dad's like, wait till she's 21 or whatever. And um, then three, and then she's like, ah, it's my wedding day. And I'm so excited to have a house and my own towels and my own china and my own things. <laughs> <laughs> wow, the morning of my wedding. Soon I'll have my own towel. <laughs> I know. It's very, the, and it's and it's like, it shows, it's, um you know, how much she's grown up because, um she wants a very unfashionable wedding and at every point of the wedding is like it's so unchic <laughs> they're just in the garden doing nothing at all <laughs> it does sound a bit chic it does and the Greta Gerwig version makes it seem chic chic as shit yeah yeah uh, it's a bit culty in the 95 version I think where they're all just holding hands <laughs> around in a circle garden weddings I think they're always a little bit yeah little there's bit always cult. there's something yeah, yeah. Um, but so I think that Megan the Books are, yeah, that she's quite, there's a lot of, um, I don't know, divisiveness within her character. Yeah, she's quite, she's very surprisingly kind in that she, you know, she gives Amy a quarter or whatever of yeah. her limes. But also, she's quite, she's supposed to be a peacemaker, but she's not a peacemaker. She's mm. quite spiteful and quite spiky. And she doesn't, she's not easy. Mm. I have a lot of sympathy for Meg. I truly... Yeah, she's quite like... um, She's quite high maintenance, actually. The whole thing when, like, she's, like, getting ready for uh, the ball and she's like, oh, I don't have a glove. And then Joe's like, okay, how about you just, like, wear one glove and hold the other glove? And she's like, no! <laughs> like it's, and then she's freaking out about the jam later on when she's trying to make jam and it doesn't work out. And she's like... And I truly understand it. She goes to bed. <laughs> Do you know what, though? Yeah. This is my... 
this is where I feel most connected to Meg. Mm-hmm. Of being like, I just want it to be nice. Yeah. I just want to make this nice. And it, I, it seems that other people who are less good than me make more things nice than I can make nice. And is it because I don't have money or is it because I am less skilled? That bit where she like, it's the making, it's when the she's been making the jam and the friend, and John mm. Brooke brings that friend home for dinner and you're just like, fuck you, John Brooke. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Leave her alone. You make fucking dinner. Leave her, the jam. But you can see, I can always see so clearly Meg's vision for her life. Yeah, yeah. And always she is a little bit thwarted. Born too because- early for Pinterest. Born too late. For her dad not to have given all their money away. <laughs> but at the end of... Let's just stick to the Little Women Good Wives. Yeah. It's too boring so to know what happens to Joe's boys. She leaves. She leaves and goes somewhere else to write. What's what's canon is Saoirse Ronan in the book factory. What, what a clever ending that is. It's so clever. This is why I, I that is my favourite version and why I think Greta Gerwig is a fucking genius. I'm, I'm so happy that we're trusting her with Barbie. You know? And that, because I do think it's like, she, yeah, she did Little Women and now she's doing the other great female myth of the 20th century, Barbie. <laughs> like, that's like, these are the, these what are do next? the Greek are gods. The yeah, those, these are founding decks. They are Greek gods and goddesses, yeah. our goddesses. Um, but she, the, the thing that happens, and, and, the, and all of her Little Women is sort of told out of time. And it sort of it asks the audience to work a little harder than it necessarily wants to when watching a Little Women film, which is like, you want to see the Stations of the Cross and you want to see them all, you know, grow up and Paris the or whatever. Moon. Exactly. But she does it slightly out of time. And then it goes to the very end where it's like uh, Joe talking to her publisher about what he thinks the ending should be. And then she's sort of like, I don't, I don't know. And he's like, why doesn't she marry the neighbor boy? And she's like, because mm, she doesn't. Because <laughs> her sister does. And he's like, no, she can't be a spinster. So she does the whole Professor Bear ending. And Professor Bear is very hot in in Greta Gerwig's version, which I think is a great mercy to us all. It's such a help. It's <laughs> such a help. Um, and then she, it, the rest of it sort of like happens sort of splintered where she shows, you know, her and Professor Bear's life, her inheriting the school from uh, Aunt March them having this like way too idealised garden party at the very end where they're like walking through the grounds and it's like all really bright like the colour grade is turned up and it's like everyone's babies are here and everyone's together and everyone's this and then while that's happening you see this thing of like her just going to the bookbinding place to see her book being made and it's like shot differently and it's like darker and it's it just feels like more realistic cinema you're like oh that's what's real that's what's I mean- real In th- and I, I think I think people will be irritated by how we spoke about it at the beginning because I do think a great deal of people found a lot of early inspiration from that character. So did I, though, and I think that's why I now have so many complex feelings about her. Mm. I felt that everyone wanted me to identify with Joe, mm. and I did, and that made me mad. Yeah. Because how dare you? You don't want them to be right about you? Don't tell me who I am. Mm-hmm. And also, I never want to run a foot race. But I did want to be the kind of person who wanted to win a foot race. <laughs> There's a lot of pressure. Yeah, and I think as well, I think the time with which Joe March emerged as a literary character, she was like, yeah, this 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 person who was trying to throw off the shackles of what it meant to be female, right? Like, and yeah. and trying to create a new um, definition of what that meant and rejecting marriage because, first of all, because she's not in love with Laurie and second of all, because she wants to reject what marriage means for women and what it would mean to marry the neighbour boy and all that kind of stuff. Um, but also, so I think that was like a genuinely 
cataclysmic character. Do you know what I mean? It's like, wow, like what an incredible person for young girls to find inspiration from in the early 20th century, you know? But as our lens changes and as Joe becomes more indelible and more of a monolith, I think she just becomes a sort of a version of the cool girl, if you know what I mean. I think you're absolutely right in that changing the world around us changes and Joe has to stay the same. Yeah. Because she's written down. She's she's done. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's the Beth problem all over again. Once you write someone down, yeah. they get fixed. And I think that it's the cool. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Girl thing I push back against. The thing yeah. of like, I'm as good as a boy and better. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And it's like, she's so... Everyone's so... It's just... She's mean about Meg's clothes and... Mm. She doesn't care about anyone else's desires if they're not to be unconventional. Yeah. The kind of tyranny of the person who's unconventional and knows they're unconventional. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, you know, I'm not like you other... I'm not like the other girls. I was going to do a Catherine Hepburn voice, but actually it's it's quite a modern voice of... I'm not like the other girls. I disapprove of frills and feathers. I disapprove of this. I yeah. disapprove of that. I, you know, I think Amy's stupid for wanting her limes. I think Beth's very cute, but not really a full human being. Mm. Amy, uh, Meg, rather. Meg, I simply despise for putting on a dress and yeah. not wanting to wear a burnt glove and being mad at me for burning her hair off. <laughs> um, and I, I think it's... I think actually... Again, it goes back to our sort of slightly uncomfortable relationship with the version people seem to love the most, which is the 95 version of like, I do think, I think it's a lot to do with Winona Ryder's star power at that time. I think she was also a huge figure in getting that movie made. Um, and it, it, it does centre around that character. And she is gooder than good in that as well. I think that's true. But also it goes back further than that, because in that 30s version, mm. it's Catherine Hepburn. It literally says Little Women starring Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. And... It's not like the other, the actresses playing the other sisters are not also famous. Mm-hmm. They're, at the time, huge stars we no longer care about. Yeah. But they're not Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. So it it always has been the star-making vehicle, hasn't it? The For Joe, the independent yeah. one, the wild one, the quirky one, the different one. The one with the monologues, the one with the dreams, the one with the, like... The one with the monologues and dreams. <laughs> yeah. Which I guess is always the case. But I have a complicated relationship with Joe because I can feel people trying to sort of press me into that shape. Mm. The most interested I am in Joe is a lot of the many trans writers who have written about that character and about Laurie over the years and about 
Little Women existing as a kind of a trans allegory, um, which we've read a lot about in preparation for this. Yes, I wish I could remember the name of the academic who did that very interesting tweet thread about it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we can stick it in the notes or put, yeah. it on, put a link somewhere. Saying that in the researcher's opinion, Louisa May Alcott was trans or embodying a kind of trans experience in that Louisa May Alcott, always called Lou or Louie, mm-hmm. referred to... I'm going to say herself because, you know, let's stick with the pronouns that a person used. Yeah. But it's complicated. Referred to herself as papa to yeah. uh, adopted children. Her father's there being like, my son, Louis. Yeah, my yeah. My lovely son. I hope you'll be a wonderful father to your children. Which, and she raises her sister's kids and, and refers to them as being like a father to them. Exactly. Exactly. Which, on one hand, yes, uh, that is like a a deeply trans urge, I would say. And another, like, I often refer to our friend Tash as my father. And like, if, if, somebody, if and Tash plays a man on stage every night. That's true. That's and true. and is, a, is a resolutely cis woman. Um, and if anyone were to view our correspondence in 100 years time, they would say, ah, yes, Natasha Hodgson. Exactly. <laughs> Who's coming on the podcast in the new year, by the way. Everyone look forward to that. That was um, so nice. But I think it is very complicated. Yes, it is. I think it's... I think it's much more complicated than we can really get into on a podcast in that... Neither of us are trans. Neither of us are trans and also neither of us are particularly Louisa May Alcott scholars. No. And also I feel personally deeply uncomfortable with being like, this moment in history is different. Mm -hmm. We know now what the truth was of history. Mm -hmm. But I do think that that's actually a lot of why I feel reluctant. Whereas actually if I look at it on a kind of basic human level, of being like, this writer writes a lot about wanting to be taken for a boy. Wanting mm-hmm. to be seen as a boy, wanting to have, but I think it's that Grace Lavery thing that that she wrote a long time ago now. But I think I still think about a lot about what separates wanting to be the other gender from wanting to do the things that the yeah. other gender are allowed to do. Because mm-hmm. she's a George Eliot scholar, yeah, and um, she was talking about it specifically in reference to this. But you know, she was widening out her gaze of like. And it, it, it is a complicated question. It's like, if you grew... Like, society determines gender, right? That we that most of us, I think, pretty much know. <laughs> um, society determines gender and how we identify gender. And so if somebody is growing up in a time where it is um, un, like categorically unfemale to, like, be a doctor or be a published author or, you know, drive a bus, and they have a deep urge to do those things, would we call that a trans desire, you know? I think I I am very reluctant to sort of say anything definitive. But I, what I will say is that it's fun to think about. It's fascinating. It's fun to think about ways in which Little Women, this book about girlhood and womanhood, mm. is also about maleness and masculinity and what masculinity means. Because Laurie, for instance... Not very mask. This is, so this is the fascinating thing of like, it is a, it is this thing of like, a boy who wants to be a girl and a girl who wants to be a boy. Does Laurie want to be a girl or does he just want to be one of the March sisters? He wants to be one of the March sisters. I don't know if, for me, I can separate out Laurie's conception of femaleness or femininity yeah. from his idea of what it is to belong to the March family. Mm. He literally marries the other one. <laughs> He, there's one, one's yeah. dead, one said no, one's married. So he picks the last one and is like, yeah. you've always been my true love. And she's like, yes, I have. 
Like, mm. it works out. Sure, it works yeah. out. But also, there are no other women in his life at all. Yeah. He has no mother. He has no grandmother. He has no female tutors. He just has Mrs. March and her four children, four daughters. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, you know, does it, does Laurie want to be a girl or does he just want to belong to this family yeah. Is there a difference? And and also to go back to our earlier point is that if, if all you know of femaleness is safety, warmth, comfort, joy, happiness, jokes, fun, running around, is that inherently then a trans desire? Because that's his experience of femaleness, you know? Yeah. Is there something inherently trans in wanting to be no longer the Lawrence boy, but one of the many March sisters? Yeah. Who are all loved. And I know that Laurie is loved too, but it's a weird vibe for him. <laughs> it He's is. school. Then he gets brought back from school and given a tutor. The tutor's angry with him. His grandfather's angry with him. Yeah. The March sisters, soft, loving. More stereotypical than than I expected to say. You know what I mean? I, mm. I didn't expect to think of it as like man household, cruel and harsh. Yeah. Female household, soft and warm. But there is that kind of tension and dichotomy. Because Laurie's behaviour is very odd. <laughs> if yes. we were looking at Laurie now, we'd think unusual. I... I, I... I know we talked about this before and um, you were like saying that you didn't really care about Laurie and like it didn't he didn't really stoke very romantic feelings for you when you were a kid. But I I found it very romantic. Well, that's because you're an Amy. That's it. Right. That is it. And even saying yes and I'm saying no. Like I I do when I'm looking back at it now when I was reading this morning, I was like, oh, yeah, I have always been obsessed with that thing. And like I do think in my uh, book, my YA books, I think Roe is very much a Laurie insert in a way. In that, like, oh, like, dark-haired, you know, Roe is non-binary, but dark it's someone you've known as a boy your whole life who's kind of been a neighbour who sort of grows into something else and sort of is sort of unendingly loyal to you and your family and you have that sort of, like, blood connection of childhood memories that nobody else can trump or conquer. That is such a big thing in Gifts. Yeah. I'm trying so hard not to give any spoilers for the third one. I know, which is coming out very soon. February 2nd, everybody. Um, but the it's also like I, I, like again Ro is a non-binary person but is identified as a boy in, in the early passages of the first book of like the boy who wants to be around girls you know yeah I could easily see a non-binary lorry it doesn't see this is tracks. this is something that we were talking about when we were listening to when we were watching the March Sisters at Christmas it was like I remember you, you turned to me and you were like, this proves to me that you could do Little Women in space and you would lose nothing. The characters work. Wherever yeah. you put them, they're the Marches. Yeah. Wherever you put them, they're the March sisters and Laurie. Yeah. And I also think, because like they, they've done so many versions of it, like a faithful adaptation of um, you know the Civil War era. Little Women. They made a, a version for TV not so long ago as well, which I didn't get around to for this. But... Um, I am more interested in seeing versions of it. I want to see it. I want to see it in like a trans household. Like I want to see it like as in like with a found family of people who aren't blood related but are no, connected don't. through their no, queer identity. I want to see that. I want to see it in a black family. I want and see how that I relates to the text. Write these, but I like. People, <laughs> I hope people do, and I hope people make them. I want to see um, the prisms of different identities. Sh- sorry, the the light of different identities shone through this prism of the March sisters. I think it could be endlessly satisfying because as you at the beginning of this podcast they are this kind of um, you know gathering force for 
because being a woman is inherently a political experience because it's always dominated by what you are or aren't allowed to do or what is permissible or not permissible during the time that you live in. It will always be a political text and therefore I think shining different political motives through it could be really great. I agree. I hope someone listening to this podcast is like, <laughs> yes, that's what I'll do in the new year. <laughs> I'll write my Yes! Book. Because the thing is, if you want, just watch the 90s version if you want it told beginning to end. Yeah. In a way that you're like, ah, yes, the version. The version. I think my problem is I'm not that interested in the version. It feels so baked in to my bones, yeah. to my brain, the, the Stations of the Cross of that version. Which is also why I understand why people go to it for comfort. I was I was uh, surprised that in the book, her like I was waiting for the Greta Gerwig like moment, and even in every version, it's like oh wow, Joe's finally got her book published. Now we can move on with our lives. But in the book, it's very much um, a footnote of like it's like towards the beginning of Good Wives, it's like and Joe had finally published one of her books, and uh, she got some good reviews and some bad reviews, and uh, the good reviews were too good, and the bad reviews were too harsh, and she thought it sucked. <laughs> The only one people really care about is the first one. Mm-hmm. Like, in terms of Little Women, I mean. Mm-hmm. Because it, the rest isn't true, right? The rest isn't a memoir. Yeah. The rest is just essentially fan fiction with her own characters. Yeah, yeah. And there's no- Although Good Wives is where all the, all the marriages happen. It's where John Brooke happens. It's where- oh, no, sorry. I, Little Women and Good Wives are only two books in the UK. They're one book everywhere else. Oh, Okay. I know, right? Yeah. Fascinating. Which is why when I was a kid and Americans, such as in that episode of Friends where Joey... He's like, i got to put Little Women in the freezer. And it's like, why? Nothing bad happens in Little Women. And it's like, Beth dies. And I was like, no, she doesn't. <laughs> when he comes back in and he's like, Beth is sick. <laughs> but again, the kind of hold a book has on the culture for that to be a joke in a mainstream like yeah. sitcom, to be like... The big, the big dumb silly guy has come in and said the words "Beth is sick," and everyone watching is like, "Oh, oh no, no, Joey can't feel pain. Joey mustn't find out that Beth is gonna get a bit sicker." And then, can I just offend Amy for one second for people who are still not convinced? Because I, yeah, I, I used to have to do this a lot before the Florence Pugh version came out because that was such a magnificent you know performance. What? I have actually really noticed that you have not had to defend. Yeah, because there were years. There were years where it was one of your main body tricks. <laughs> we go to cool but, parties. But then, but then uh, Florence Pugh just ripped it for me, really. Uh, so, but just to reiterate, um, I think, first of all, as I said earlier, I think being the youngest child is a far lonelier experience than is often given credit for in narratives. And I think there's something about the child characterization of Amy that really gets to the heart of that. First of all, second of all, the thing of like what I for years, what I found most fascinating about Little Women is that it is this eternal grudge match between Joe and Amy. Right. That like they're both these two people with like artistic sensibilities who are incredibly fiery, but who also have very different ways of looking at the world and looking at work as well. Like Amy's a painter. And like there's a a lovely actually chapter in Good Wives where she talks about like um, how Amy had a lot of talent but she hadn't found like her medium yet so she like does pen and ink for a while and she does clay for a while and she does watercolours for a while and like some of them are good but they're not that good <laughs> kind of thing and like this th- this thing that's in the book and in the film which is like I want to be great or I want to be nothing and 
that being very rooted in economical concerns of like, if you can't be great, you can't make money because you have to be exceptional to be a woman and some women aren't exceptional. (laughs) Really, the secret under message of little women is if you can make money with art, you can be an artist, which, you know what? If I had a father who never made any money and we were constantly poor because he was being like, my nobles, my, my noble ideals, my principles. Yeah. I too would probably end up thinking, no, quality of art, only important insofar as yeah. it makes money. Art is money. Money is art. Well, we, ha- we haven't even talked about this yet. The, um, the Professor Bear yelling at Joe for writing <laughs> Frankenstein stories or whatever. I think it's weird that every version of this, a man yells at Joe and is like, you're a bad writer and you write trash mm. for losers who want to read it. Just think it's an eternal struggle. And yes, Little Women is probably better than like... You know, the Curse of the Black Pearl. No, that's the Paris of the Caribbean. Curse of the Black Pearl! It is, though. It's like, it's bodice rippers. It's thrillers. Yeah. I like thrillers. I wish people would be less shitty about books that people like to read. Yeah. But then... Because the framing of it is always that, like, Joe is laboring away, making, like, two or three dollars at a time for, like, these these horror stories or whatever. And then she, like, Professor Barry yells at her and they say, oh, write something real, write something about you, write something that, like, represents the fascinating woman that I know. And then she writes it to women and makes a million bucks. <laughs> and I, you know... Don't write a story. Write a memoir. Write autofiction. Write about yourself. There's a real... There's a real modern truth to that. Just being like, put your pain onto the page, mm. tell us about your dead sister and your poverty, and people will give you the money. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before about feeling for a long time like the only marketable thing about me was pain. Mm. Feeling that in order to make a book work, I had to write about myself and my own personal life and pain. Mm. And it's been a very hard way to make a living and I'm not the only young female writer who gets this. Many of us do. Mm. This sense of, what is Sailor Bell about you is your life. Yeah. Your work is a vehicle through which you can pour your life, which happens much less to men. It's interesting. It's like, because um, I, I know, like, because Dolly gets the same thing. She's somebody who's constantly told to write about her, her personal sex life, her personal love life. And she's like, no, I just want to write about things I want to write. You know what I mean? I don't want to have to trade in these little morsels of personal life in order for you to feel like you're getting something. But I do think it's a really hard thing to transition out of. Exactly. And I think it's interesting because it's like, it's like for you, you have a reverse Joe March experience where you made bits of money piecemeal <laughs> for like writing your column for the pool. Um, what a lot of pool content. What today. a lot of pool Sorry. content today, if anyone remembers it, which was just for anyone who doesn't, it was a, a feminist uh, website. <laughs> that I was a staff member of and that you were a freelancer for. It went down in flames in a way that uh, I think somebody will <laughs> dramatise one day, but maybe it'll be me. But <laughs> um, but you were wrote like for a quite, well, I now realise it's quite a tiny amount of money about your um, daily struggles, your weekly struggles with having, being a 25-year-old woman, 23-year-old woman whose uh, partner was was dying of a very rare cancer. And how you were coping, and I know, Badly. I know you. That money was very useful to you, but also, it, like, it was your Joe March sort of like racing out your fucking fairy stories for yeah, a, a, a week, greedy audience. Every week, trying to find a new way to make my pain interesting. Often, as it was happening, you know, often sitting 
in a like intensive care corridor being like, and here's the lessons I'm learning from yeah. being in this weird house they give you when your partner is dying. Yeah. Like sleep. being on the cold face of like, house. yeah, illness and... Yeah, just being like, I am dying for want of support here. Here you go. And in exchange getting a very small amount of money, really. Mm. And I feel that that's not an uncommon experience. You know, we both did, and I think probably a lot of listeners to this podcast kind of grew up in this era of XO Jane, Mm -hmm. and it happened to me. Yeah, yeah. Which is really only an evolution, like a slightly fancier literary evolution of uh, take a break. But I think that there's always been a market for women's pain. When did it start? And did it start with this true life little women? Of being like, it's actually real, you know. Her dad actually is a weirdo and she actually has got four sisters. Because even now, much like with a lot of things we've discussed in this podcast, there is this thing of being like, but what really happened? Did it really Mm -hmm. happen? You know, it's like the heartburn thing. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking of, to bring it back to the Efrons. There's a weird tension. I would love to know how men feel about this, how male writers feel Mm. about whether this happens to them. Because I feel like we're in a place where now we talk about this quite openly with young women. Mm. young women selling their pay young women being asked how much of this is true how much of it's real how much how much is exactly what happened how much have you lied or not lied and it's does it used... not happen to men I'm not sure. I would like to ask one I don't, <laughs> I don't know any do you <laughs> I don't know any men um, like for example I don't think David Sedaris loses a wink of sleep <laughs> I think he just buys more property <laughs> Um, just goes off to Normandy or perhaps do you know what I think it I think it does happen to them but I do think that that, and they're like oh wow how did your sister Tiffany feel about this or whatever in the case of David Sedaris another big family writer Um, but I think men are taught that they can be ruthless with their work and they're not expected so true to be charitable and whereas I think that there's still this very social expectation on women to not rock the boat and it's like so and so won't like that and we have to it's really pushed on us whereas I think that like it does happen to men they go oh god did your sister mind about that and I think they I don't know male male talent yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) male talent is nurtured in a way where they are not afraid to do those things as much Maybe they are. I don't know. I'm, t- I'm taking literally the most famous example of a living writer today who write, who's a man and writes about his family. Even recording this podcast, I feel like I'm being ungrateful. To Louisa? Yeah. To Joe. I'm like, yeah. no, I'm obviously you're, obviously you're almost right. Obviously it's nearly right. And that's how I feel about mostly about the adaptations as well. Mm. Obviously I'm being ungrateful in thinking it could be different. Although actually, to be fair. I did love the Greta Gerwig version and I would not change it. No, I wouldn't change anything about it. I, feel like I, and Greta I think Gerwig really gets it. She really gets it. And the best thing, the best versions of Joe and uh, is are the ones that are like, yeah, she's a bit of pain in the arse. Like which is why I she, think the Greta Gerwig version works for me yeah. because there's that sense of looking back. There's a sense because it ends with her writing. Mm. And because you see it all out of time. There's that quite tender st- tender sense of I am 30 and looking back on myself at 14 mm. I was a pain in the ass. yeah Oh, but I tried so hard yeah um, one thing we haven't talked about yet really and we should probably wrap up soon is the the rejecting of Laurie we've talked about Laurie of himself but that's that, that scene think... which I think has done every version of it I like watching I think for me 
it's actually not a change of subject. It's the same subject. Mm. Because the first thing we hear people saying about... Laurie, I think it's Meg who overhears it. It's people being like, oh, Mrs. March has done well. She's going to get one of her girls to go off with the... Oh, Laurie. yeah. Yeah. It's Joe's big I will, like rejection of, I am not in this narrative. I'm yes, and it, it's also very story. a single man possessing a great fortune must be in want of a wife, isn't it? It's like, yeah. oh yeah, it, 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 and it probably is actually in conversation with that pride and prejudice thing of like, ah yes, you've got a wealthy single male neighbour. <laughs> You're like... But the thing is, it makes perfect sense, just like Mrs. Bennet makes sense mm. in wanting one of her daughters to marry Mr. Collins so that they won't all be homeless and die. Yeah. It's the, you know, it's the sense and sensibility thing of... You know, sense they're they're going to be turfed out of their they house. They are turfed out of there. Oh, they are turfed out. Yeah, because that's just how it works. Yeah, and I I love, but I love it because it's still every time I watch it in anything, it's this um this brilliant surprise. That's the thing. You know, it's not just Joe's rejection of Laurie. It is the book's rejection of being the narrative you think it is. Yeah, which yeah. is why that ending of the Greta Gerwig one is so great because it puts the two things next to each other. Yeah. It makes that very explicit. I mean, yeah. it doesn't put the rejection of Laurie next to it, but it kind of, mm. all running through it, you have the sense, this is a story that's being crafted. This is something you're kind of looking back on. Mm. But I, it's not the way the story's supposed to go. It's yeah. not what's supposed to happen. It's so weird and jarring, and we still talk about it a lot, because as a child, I felt strongly that she should have married Laurie. Then we like stories that are like, and the pr- perfect man didn't always end up with the perfect woman, and this is one where the perfect woman is like no to the per- the scruffy woman says no to the perfect man. Yeah. Oh yeah. The scruffy yeah, chaotic yeah. woman looks at the perfect man, Laurie, who's so yeah. rich and he loves her, and is like, you know what? No, I'm just not. I'm and just not. I reread the scene before coming over here, and it's this, and 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 Greta Gerwig basically does it like line for line, like she actually. Even though that version feels so modern, it lifts the most text from the book, um, which is like uh, he keeps trying to post her and she keeps like, no, don't, please don't, please, 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 do not, do not say any more things that don't ruin the day. And he's like, he's like, Joe, they expect it. Everyone expects it. My grandfather expects it. Your parents expect it. Everyone's happy for us already. Can't we just do that? And it's like that 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 re- repetition already. That repetition of the word expect is so interesting because it's like. They're talking about the characters within the book, but they're also talking about the reader. Everyone is happy for us already. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's that's interesting, isn't it? Is like the weight of the expectation of the reader and the family, because it would be such a great match. Yeah. It would uh, solve I, everyone's problems. It would, it would solve Joe's a pain. Joe's a pain. Who's going to marry Joe? Obviously, we don't have to worry about yeah, her. Yeah, her best friend. Because her best friend, who is rich, by the way. And hot. Rich and hot and already likes her mum. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And best friends with her sister's husband. Ugh. It's all... Perfect. The idea that Louisa May Alcott had the, just the, the brass neck to be the like... The brass neck. Just be like, no. 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 I so get it. Like, I as, as somebody who also writes serialised fiction for young people... There are, and who has access to Goodreads, <laughs> there are things that I know that, that, that people want the characters to do and there is a special sadistic joy in not giving it to them. <laughs> Obviously, I write fiction for younger readers, so I get, mm-hmm. and when they write to me, they write to me on their nice paper. Often, often it has like a, a cartoon animal in the corner and they steal their letters with a sticker. So there's not the same kind of joy. But I do 
feel strongly what what the expectation for so I've just finished writing the sequel mm. to my first children's book so I'm writing the sequel I'm editing the sequel now and there's so many places where I'm like ah oh, this should I can feel what the sequel wants me to do yeah no no I won't they're my people and I can do what I want it's very bratty instinct it's back to Barbie. It's being like, no, my Barbie does what I Yeah. But I do on this podcast as well. People are like, why don't you cover X? I'm like, because mm, you want it too badly and I don't want it. <laughs> I want to give it to you. <laughs> but I think also there's something about trying to make any kind of art with the expectation that someone else knows better than you. Someone else knows better than you what would be good on the podcast. Mm. And obviously the nice thing about this is we're doing this on a reader, on a listener recommendation. Yeah. So sometimes you are nice. <laughs> Sometimes, Sometimes I am not a vengeful god. <laughs> Perhaps you may have your toys, children. But I do think there is a weird pressure in, but I want you to do this. I want you to write this. Yeah. I certainly felt when I was writing the follow-up to Midnight Chicken mm. that people wanted Midnight Chicken too and I wanted to write a different kind of book. The minute you as a writer or as a podcaster or as any kind of artist know what people want you to do... Mm. There's a thing of being like, no, I have to. It has to be me that I put on the page or on yeah. the microphone or wherever. It has to be me that I put. It has to be my thought. It can't be your thought because yeah. otherwise there's no point. Otherwise there's no point because you thought it already. You've like you've already you imagined already what imagine it would. Imagine what it would be like. Yeah, yeah. You already know what my take on this is. I think carrying on with that idea of you've got to write the thing you want to write. Mm. You've got to write the thing, and even if that means. It, even if it's the thing that nobody wants. Even if it's the thing that nobody wants. You can see how you get there as one of four sisters. You can see how mm. the struggle of being one of four sisters is to break away from the herd, to be your own person, to do your own thing, to get out of that, the shape your family has put you in, which I think is a struggle for anyone, mm. for all of us, right, is to get away from the childhood of being the messy one. Mm. Like, for example, my parents, always surprised that my house is quite clean because I'm no longer 12 years old. Right. But I think everyone's got that sense of who I was told I was versus who I am. Everyone has that, like, mm. internal struggle. Mm. And I don't want to end the podcast on be true to yourself, but I do want to end on, wow, it is a struggle, isn't it? It is a struggle. And you know what? If you just say that Joe doesn't have to marry Laurie, maybe you will make some timeless art that people will make a podcast about in 150 years. Uh, of all the versions that we've observed... Who does the best job of which character? Like, who is the ultimate Marmy? Who is the ultimate Meg? Who is the ultimate you know, everyone? I think, my rundown, Susan Sarandon was the best Marmy. Agree. Agree. 95. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because Laura Dern, from Greta Gerwig's version, looks like she's seen too many phones. Like, <laughs> Yes. I'd, I could believe her playing anything up to anywhere as far back as 1985. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't necessarily believe... It's not that she's got a face that's definitely seen an iPhone. Yeah. But that's a face that knows what a pager is. Yeah, that's a face that <laughs> Sorry, Laura Dern, great work, but 1985 is the limit, I'm afraid. Um, the... I don't care about the dad. Uh, the best... <laughs> um, the best Meg... Who's the best? I'm going to go on a limb and say that my best is, because there are no personalities, only dynamics, mm. is the Meg Beth... Uh, from the March Sisters at Christmas. Yes. Where Meg is a lawyer. Meg is a hotshot lawyer. This yeah. is important that you know this. Meg is a hotshot lawyer. <laughs> Who's um, studying for the bar exam. She's studying for the bar. Amy is like, I'm going to be an actress. I'm going to be in theatre, but is currently doing the 
like props. Doing the tech. Doing the tech. For a local production of Twelfth Night. (laughs) The most regional production of Twelfth Night ever. A very believable regional production, I think. Beth has discussed drifting around the house, not being quite good enough to get into Mm -hmm. Juilliard. Oh, my God. Joe's journey in the Marchesters of Christmas. And Joe is a ghost tweeter for a famous pop star. And then she gets hired to ghostwrite the pop star's autobiography. And th- and then this, the burning of the manuscript is... Ju- like, Amy, she logs into Twitter. Amy logging into Twitter and sending a headless nude yeah. as the celebrity, thereby ruining Joe. Thereby getting Joe's photo fired from both the autobiography and the tweeting job. Yeah. The whole book is burned. Yeah. The whole manuscript that she's been working so hard on to get this celebrity autobiography done in time because no. it's a brilliant transference into the 21st century of like what does art as commerce look like now do you know what I mean it looks like ghostwriting yeah a famous pop star's autobiography and then what does deli- what does burning a manuscript look like in a world where no one's got only one copy mm-hmm. and it looks like the manuscript's still there you just can't use it because you've been fired from the IP <laughs> so yeah I think Meg is great in that even though it's very disquieting because she's blonde Meg's, Meg's not a blonde mm. but I Really, that the Meg for me is very good in that because the Meg Beth dynamic. You see the mothering. Yeah. You see the mothering quality of Meg, but also the ambition for something more. Mm. She so wants nice things. Honestly, some people just can't look at made for TV movies. They just find it a bit too low rent and it bums them out. And I get that. But if you're gonna watch any TV movie, watch this one. It's on Amazon. It's really it's Amazon. It's totally free. Um, the best Joe for me is Saoirse. Agree. Although Catherine Hepburn I enjoy, obviously. But My she... best Beth is Claire Danes, the 95 version. Yes, because you think she gets the dreamy... Yeah, and I also think that death scene is just... It rips me up. Where she says to Joe, she's like, you know, I, I never really wanted... I never really saw myself. You guys all had dreams and I never really envisioned it. And she's like... You know, I was always behind, but now I'm going ahead of all of you. And the way she delivers it is just, it fucking ruins I'm, I'm, me. I'm crying, so. Yeah. <laughs> I think that... Um, I think Claire Danes is one of our great treasures. <laughs> I agree. But I also think that maybe for me, there's not yet been a Beth where... Because I... I want... Because Claire Danes does it. She does the thing, but she doesn't do it quite enough. I want... I want someone to make me care about Beth. You want, like... What Lizzie was like in real... You want that sort of like angry, exactly. sick person who doesn't I want, an want to angry, die. Sick person. One of my things I think about a lot is how we, obviously for obvious reasons, is how we canonise sick people. Is how we think about sickness and disability either as invisible or if we let it be visible, it has to be holy. Mm. And like, look, pain does make you think about life differently. But also... Some of that anger, some of that, like, I want someone to just push that Louisa May, push that, like, Louisa May Alcott put a door there by putting mm. Beth in the story. Mm. I want someone just to push that a bit open and be like, yeah. what else could be there? Mm. For me, not yet a definitive Beth. But I'll All take, right. I'll like, take Claire Danes as a, a stopgap. Yeah. Um, and the best Amy... Is Florence Pugh? Florence Pugh. Yeah. She, she, Florence Pugh, I would say, as someone who often socialises with you in contexts where we are having to defend little women. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
on the kind of you know yeah she's time. really free, she's really freed up my but certainly like on the grand scheme of <laughs> the last 10 years of our lives mm. I would say you've really been able to just, just re- 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 retire that one retire the <laughs> justice for Amy March yeah contingent since Florence Pugh it's no longer a fun opinion to have no it's actually quite basic now now it's a basic opinion because it's just yeah. like I think Florence Pugh is great and I was like yes yes she's very good in we that agree. movie oh but when she's like Laura you're being mean when he's like teasing her and trying to like kiss her or whatever and she's like Laura you're being mean I have loved you my whole life it's only ever been Joe. It's so bad. It ruins me when they're in Paris. Yeah. I, uh, whole life. I loved you my whole life. Because the thing is, everyone always talks about how, oh, does 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 Laurie even love Amy or is he just trying to muscle into the marriage family? But Amy really loves Laurie. It doesn't matter. Yeah. No, I don't think... I've got a sweeping theory. Mm. Men care less. <laughs> They care less. Like, when's, they're, when's they're ready to get married? They're ready to get married. It was covering Sex in the City and it's true. Sex in the City. But like, I think they just generally, because of socialisation, maybe, or yeah, probably because mm. of socialisation, they just think things through less. They don't have to yeah. have the big conversation with their friends being like, but if you love her, but do you love... Yeah, but, do you, but is she the one? <laughs> to what extent do you love her? To what extent is love... In, in what way? In what way? And do you love her just like a, a a really good friend who you have sex with or more? Or should it be... Do her values mirror yours? In what sense? It's yeah. just a lot more like being like, this is really great and I enjoy yeah. it and it works. <laughs> Rather than... God love them. Yeah, nice. Nice to not have to overthink everything every moment of the day. Mm. Which is the thing that women are socialised into by films and books such as the ones we discuss on this podcast. And finally, Laurie. We had a lot of affection for... I think it's Timothy Chalamet, personally. Um, but a lot of affection for the Marchester's a Christmas Laurie because he's such a dumb meathead. I loved a Laurie who's just like a dumb meathead. Again, he doesn't overthink things. He's just like, I like you. The only problem with the Marchester's a Christmas is Laurie is way too old for Amy. And the and whole film knows it. on day one of filming. Which means that, like, scenes where you're like, this should be a big kiss... A big kissing scene. He just like kisses her on the cheek and is like, "Ho ho!" Yeah. Maybe in a few years, we'll. Yeah, yeah. It is very bad, isn't it? And it's like it, it, it sort of makes it feels fine in it, like a civil war epic. But in the in the twenty twelve, it's like no, this is feels a little mad. This it's a feels little creepy. <laughs> yeah. We're madly in love with one sister, but then ultimately, do I think in the March Sisters of Christmas, Teddy's going to marry Amy? I do not. They call him Teddy, I think, to mm. diversify him. I don't think Teddy's going to marry Amy. I think they'll, like, sleep together twice. Yeah. And then they'll be like, is we really doing this? Importantly, Laurie has an app. <laughs> <laughs> I do think for made-for-TV uh, Christmas movies, it's it's like an internal joke within the people who make them to have them have crazy tech-adjacent businesses. Yes, Laurie's app is a Countdown to Christmas app, and it features an elf. Dan... <laughs> It's like 54 days till Christmas and a dancing gif of an elf and we're led to believe he's made a huge amount of money through this. He's made his millions. <laughs> but I think that does give him an edge. But Timothy Chalamet... Timothy Chalamet is doing his best with a part mm. that... Timothy Chalamet's got that weird little lost boy thing of mm. please love me, please love me. I believe that he would marry mm. another sister to just be like, I'm in... Yeah, and and also his um him going off the rails in Europe is is very good as well. Very believable. Fred Vaughn, everyone, <laughs> it's so good. Fred Vaughn. Yeah, I I think that you've not to say that 
Laurie only marries for being in the family. Mm. But he does just want to belong, and he wants to belong properly. Mm. And there's no... For him, there's no way that just being like, we love you so much, you'll always be part of our family. I don't think... His parents are dead. I don't think he wants to be like, you're always welcome here. I think he wants to be like, no, I am in. I am Mr. March. <laughs> yeah, and I, I love this bit as well where he's like, um, he's, he's he's in a rage about something. I love his rages in the book when he's like, yeah, and if Beth had a lover, I'd hate him too. <laughs> like he hates all the women, <laughs> all the men that come into the women's lives. <laughs> if Beth had a lover, I'd hate him too. Obviously she's dying, so she hasn't. You better believe I would. Yeah. <laughs> But um, this has been our Christmas special. It's been a real, a real good time, I think. I agree. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. In this, in this nice little studio, <laughs> not very far from my house, full of interesting shapes. <laughs> um, Merry Christmas, everyone. I'll see you in the new year um, for a whole new season of Sentimental Garbage. And I'll see you next Christmas, unless I think of something. I yeah, I mean, come on for the new season. I've been very sloppy about booking guests. <laughs> This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. The podcast was produced and edited by me, with mix and music by Harry Harris, and artwork by Gavin Day. If you'd like to email me about the pod, you can do so on sentimentalpod at gmail.com, or get in touch with me directly on Twitter or Instagram at ZaraLine. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.